Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 for our study tonight, 1 Kings 18. We'll begin reading there in verse 17, but I want to give this background. We're speaking about prayer, and prayer that gets answered is our theme tonight. It would be silly to pray and not expect to get answers, and yet how many prayers are offered up in churches and in in individual lives without any expectation that God will ever hear? And so that's inane, isn't it? But we do need to know as God's children what kind of prayer or what are the conditions, what what gets prayer answered. In A.W. Pink's epic work on the life of Elijah, he writes this background information on the study that we're about to give. Elijah appeared on the stage of public action during one of the darkest hours of Israel's sad history. Israel had grievously and flagrantly departed from Jehovah. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And that which directly opposed him had been publicly set up. Never before had the favored nation sunk so low. Fifty-eight years had passed since the kingdom had been rent in twain following the death of Solomon. During that brief period, no less than seven kings had reigned over ten tribes, All of them, without exception, were wicked men. The first was Jeroboam. He made two calves of gold and said unto the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's so unreasonable to ask you to come to worship. We're going to make it easy on you. And it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He goes back to the sin of Aaron, the people at the great exodus, and again creates golden calves. They did not learn the lesson of God's ire against that. Behold your gods. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put up in Dan. He made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest people of the nation, which were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. This sets the background of Elijah's appearance. He goes on to say, Ahab is the king during Elijah's ministry. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now, I read you the first king, what he did. We come to Ahab, and when we say, how could it get any worse... The Holy Spirit says, oh yes, Ahab did worse than all those before. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. The marriage of Ahab to this heathen princess was, as might fully be expected, fraught with the most frightful consequences. In a short time, all trace of pure worship of Jehovah had absolutely vanished from the land, and gross idolatry became rampant. The golden calves were worshipped at Dan and Bethel. A temple had been erected to Baal in Samaria. The groves of Baal appeared on every side, and the priests of Baal took full charge of the religious life of Israel. It was openly declared that Baal lived and that Jehovah ceased to be. He writes, it was in the midst of this spiritual darkness 
and degradation that there appeared on the stage of public action with dramatic suddenness. Oh, when revival comes, it always comes that way. Not that there has not been preparatory work for years of praying, but sovereignly and suddenly there arrives on the scene a solitary but striking witness to and for the living God. The eminent commentator began his remarks upon 1 Kings 17 by saying, The most illustrious prophet Elijah was raised up in the reign of the most wicked of the kings of Israel. There are two major reasons, and that's, but, but, but then that brings us to our scripture reading here. Verse 17 of chapter 18, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Isn't it remarkable that the heathen tell God's people, You're the, one, you're the problem in Israel. Here comes the man that's made all the trouble in Israel. What a compliment to call Elijah the troubler of Israel. Oh, that God would raise up troublers in America of this sort, in pulpits across the land. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou. (laughs) How bold. This king could have his head on a platter. I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are, Ahab. Oh, what boldness. This is not disrespect. This is spirit-filled boldness from the man of God, not unlike John the Baptist pointing his finger at Herod and uh, Nathan pointing his finger at David. Thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. That means she sponsored them, put them up, paid their salaries. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, if there is a God, if the Lord be God, follow him. It's quite simple, isn't it? That's the Christian life in a verse. If he's God, follow him. That's what Mary said to the servants at the wedding of Canaan. Whatsoever he saith, and you do it. So it's that simple. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Let them therefore, and he puts down the conditions, the bullocks, the, the sacrifice. Look in verse 24. And call ye on the name of your gods, And I will call on the name of the Lord, the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire. Let him be God. The God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. The contest is drawn up. I want to take you to verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. That's a very important part of our study, the time of this prayer, where it was offered. What does it indicate about Elijah? That Elijah the prophet came near, drawing near to God. The promise, all they that draw near to God, God will draw near to them. And said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things 
at thy word. I'm not on an ego trip. I didn't invent this. I didn't dream this up to have a show. Lord, let it be known that you've called me and I brought this contest to honor and glorify you and at your bidding. You see, Elijah tells us he didn't even have the idea. God told him what to do. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, that thou hast hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood. And not only that, when God does something, it's beyond what we ask or think, isn't it? It burnt the stones. What a fire that was. Was that not a supernatural fire that can burn stones? Those big altar stones they would raise up. And the dust, fire burning dust. Have you ever seen fire burn dirt? It's an amazing fire, isn't it? Have you ever seen fire that licked up the water that was in the trench standing water, burned like gasoline? When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God, the one and only God, without rival, is He. There are two major reasons why so many of our prayers go unanswered. First of all, they don't meet God's requirements, quite simply. And secondly, they are unscriptural. We have countless examples of prayer in the Scripture, of prayer promises of instruction in prayer, so there's no reason on earth why any of our prayers, why we should ever pray an unscriptural prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges in the Christian life. Could you tell me anything that would equal the privilege of going before the creator of the universe and making your request known? Him promising that he can do all things, that his arm is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. It is the way that we have experiential access to God for our souls to draw near. When we say draw near to God, we're saying we go before him in prayer, pouring out our hearts, calling upon him for us to have spiritual communion with our creator. God speaks to us when we read his word. We speak to to him and pouring our hearts out in prayer. It is the channel through which all of our needs are supplied. I'm going to repeat that because I need to hear it and you need to hear it. Prayer is the channel through which all of our needs are supplied. It is a miracle. Every prayer is a miracle. Answered prayer. It is a miracle whereby our faith rises to heaven. And in response, a miraculous answer comes down from God to earth. But if that channel is choked, the only channel we have to get all of our needs from the Lord, is the channel of prayer. That channel can be choked. It can be clogged. These supplies then are held back. The answer will not come through and our needs will not be met. That's the reason so many individual Christians and so many ministries lack what they need. This is the reason. If our faith is asleep, miracles don't take place. The Lord said in Isaiah 59, verse 2, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. It's not that his face is not there, but our sin, as it were, throws a a, a veil over the face of God. So it seems as if he's not there. Your prayers have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. 
When we examine the life of Elijah, we see that he is held up for us in the New Testament as the example of how to pray. When James writes his, 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 his uh, epistle, when he gets to the end of it, exhausting the matter of faith and prayer, he points to Elijah as the signal uh, example of fervent and effectual prayer. And there he tells us that in, in James chapter 5, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, was not some otherworldly person, human being just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not by, on earth by the space of three years and six months. That's an exact period of time, isn't it? There's a reason for that. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. He tells us that's the way, that's the example of answered prayer. Jeremiah five twenty five says, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. Does this not describe many of us today? Lamentations 3.42, make a note of these references. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Lamentations 3.42. How sad this is to have the creator of the universe with all power in heaven and in earth and yet have that power cut off from us in his ear, not that it cannot hear, hears the feeblest sigh. It hears the emotion of his children's heart, and yet our sins will separate the answer from coming. Many profession, professing believers presume that, there's, that no matter what his daily life is like, he can just pray, and people act like that's a privilege. It is a privilege of the child of God, but that regardless of the circumstances that he can just do whatever he wants to and call out in prayer, and he's guaranteed to get what he wants from God. You hear teaching along that line, erroneous teaching along that line. Psalm 66, verse 18 is clearly in the word of God. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's not that he can't. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on, but it's not the hearing in the sense of him answering the prayer in the way that we would desire. Prayer promises are both positive and negative, we see here. We often point to the, the claims in the Scripture of God answering prayer, and he does. The, the positive part is that God yearns to hear and to supply our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus and to answer when we come in faith and confessing our sins and claiming. The negative side is it that that very sin and willfulness and disobedience blocks the prayers from from going through. We, we, we use that kind of terminology of praying through or getting through. There must be daily obedience to the word, cleansing from sin, abiding in fellowship with the Lord to experience the blessings of answered prayer. And we have here before us in this chapter, though we did not read it in its entirety, a flesh and blood example that the Lord has left for us in the scripture of one who did. John fifteen seven promises, if you abide in me, that's a condition, isn't it? If you abide in me, remain in constant fellowship with me. As we sing, he, he walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I'm his own. What is that a sign of? Fellowship. The way is clear. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. If you abide in me, that means God controls our thoughts and minds. His delights are our delights. His goals are our goals. What he wants, we want. We think about it. We meditate on it. Psalm 1 is a picture of abiding. 
if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. And that's, that verse is often quoted but not obeyed. If you abide in me, fellowship with me, and ask in my words abide in you, the reason the word must abide in us is so that we'll ask scripturally, that we'll ask things that God is willing to give. It's not I need a Mercedes by Friday or a jet plane or, or a million dollars or you know, whatever it may be. That's not, that's not what this is saying. If I abide in him, wanting what he wants, thinking about what he thinks, delighting in what he delights, and what does God delight in? His word, his church, his bride. He, he glo- the glory of the Lord is in his church, his people here left here on earth, the saving of the lost, the souls of men. Those eternal things are what God delights in. Should we not delight in it? We allow the most frivolous things to thrill us and delight us. These larger, weightier things are all around us and come to each one of us. We just heard some serious requests, didn't we? I'll tell you, there's a household in Pascagoula, Mississippi tonight that doesn't care what the top ten anything is in sports or in Hollywood or The Voice or whatever it is or America's Got Talent or who, what star married who. They could care less about that tonight. In an instant, their souls and their lives have been reduced to eternity and the frailty of life and the brevity of the souls of men. Sometimes these things shock us and bring us to the very reality that we're all just passing through on this journey. And then what? Whatever John 3 verse 22 says, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Some people stop short of that. We ask it, we get it. That's not what it's saying. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Do is practice those things that are pleasing in his sight. It's not enough to come boldly to the throne of grace as we're told to do in Hebrews 10, verse 22. We also, are, as the scripture says, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, that means cleansed, from an evil conscience. Oh, we ought to park there and talk about the conscience, that precious gift that God has given to each of us that works in conjunction with his word I would just say to you, though I have not time to deal with that issue, don't ever violate your conscience. Your conscience will work in accordance with God's word and his spirit, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Whatever defiles must be removed by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the cleansing word of Christ. Elijah had walked in obedience to God's word. There's a whole life behind the the scene that we look at here in our text before us. You don't just sashay one day and say, gather your, I'll tell you what, gather your priests. We'll have a showdown here. I hear that kind of brash preaching and teaching and so-called Christian living. That's not what this is is about at all. There's a life, although Elijah appears suddenly on the scene, no one with that kind of faith and that kind of purity of life that just happens in a second. He was saved, saved by the Lord, his heart won by him. The Lord has done such a gracious work in his heart. He's been pondering not only the sin of his country, but the word of God to trace why the situation is as it is. And apostasy was all around him. Elijah had maintain personal communion with the Lord in the darkest day on earth. Now, 
that shows us that though the, the hour is late and it is dark, it is possible to have this kind of fervent faith that Elijah has in dark days. With all that going on around him, he obeyed what God told him to do, and he refused to move until the Lord moved him. We have our young people here and several graduating yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and just sprinkle out through the weekend. And I will tell you, young people, you're about to enter into a world where God is not respected, and the things that you've been entrusted here in Sunday school and church in Awana is, is made fun of on a daily basis. You must resolutely decide, I will serve the Lord and obey his word, no matter if my college professor gets in my face and makes fun of it, whether all the friends and young people that I'm with don't believe what I've been taught. You hold to the word of God. Elijah didn't shrink back. He, his life was ordered by the revealed will of his master. Is mine? Is yours? Are you experiencing answered prayer? Elijah didn't shrink back from at the most unpleasant duty. And back in chapter 18, verse 1, God said, All right, you're concerned about holiness in Israel? Go show yourself to Ahab and tell him what I want him to know. Now, that's one visit I wouldn't want to make. I'd hate to go to Ahab's door and knock on his door and say, I've got to tell you something. You're a sinner before the Lord, and you're the reason the nation is in this condition. It's in. Go show yourself to Ahab, the Scripture tells us, and, 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 and tell him what I need him to hear. This kind of believer has the ear of God and, and the power of God. I was listening recently of our missionary, Derek Moreland, uh, doing amazing work there in Oxford, England. I preached for him several times. And he was on a, a show like something that you'd see on Fox or one of these talk shows, MSNBC. And uh, he was the Lone Ranger and all these so-called, from everything from atheists, you can imagine, in England to quasi-Christians or whatever, all kinds. And they were asking about the street preaching. And they were making, the commentator was acting so, making such light of it. Why do you do it? And what do you say? Give me something, you know. And he was just taunting him. I was so proud. He just sat there and, and just gave the scripture so humbly and boldly that it is the gospel of the power of God and the salvation. And it's the wonderful message that everyone needs to hear. He said, well, here's the, here's the atheist society in England right here. He, and he gave him, he needs to be saved from his atheism, from all kinds of things. He said, what would you say to him? And he graciously told him what he, and I thought, you know, the, the boldness it takes to stand on the street corner and declare that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, James 5.16 says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The righteous man that James speaks of has an imputed righteousness given to him when he comes to Jesus Christ in salvation. But James is talking about much more than that imputed righteousness at salvation. He's also one who is right with God practically in his daily life, whose ways please the Lord. So Elijah came to prayer at the time. I've made note of it when we read the scripture there in verse 36. Note it there again. He came at the time of the evening sacrifice. Do you know what that shows about Elijah? When he came to this contest with the prophets of Baal, don't you know how intimidating they were? How the lost always put down God's people, how ignorant we are, how, how silly we are to believe. He chose the time of the evening sacrifice, which showed his faith and confidence in the atoning sacrifice of God. That evening sacrifice pointed to the coming work of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, all that we do must point to Jesus Christ, to His work, to His sinless life, to His salvation. He's left us here to do that, to be His mouthpiece. There will not be a loudspeaker from heaven to preach the gospel to the world tomorrow, but there will be people like you and me in our everyday walks of life, in our, at work, in school, wherever we are, to tell the, the, the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see what his request was in verse 36. This was his request. How does Elijah's request and your request measure up? Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. Now, when I consider this prayer, I think to myself, Elijah is painting himself in a corner, isn't he? He's very specific, very plain, very straightforward. He's asking the Lord to do something this day, right now, to show that he's the God of Israel. His heart was filled with a burning desire for the one true God to be made known. And he couldn't stand any longer the sight of his land, a land that was to be Jehovah's own, his chosen people, to be in such a predicament, such a low state of apostasy, with a godless king and his wife, bringing the, the worship of Baal and ramming it down the people's throat. It, it grieved Elijah. And in fact, when the Holy Spirit introduces us to Elijah, he tells us, he describes him as one who is being very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, we're jealous over our name. We're jealous over what people say or do about our possessions, our wives, our husbands. We're jealous over a lot. What a strong word jealousy is. But the Bible tells us that the spiritual person is jealous for God. Let me ask you this evening, are we jealous for God? Do we cringe when people use his name as a byword? Does it make us sick to our stomach when people say there is no God and people evolved over millions of years? Does those kind of slams against our God and his word, does it make us tremble? Do we, are we jealous for God to be revealed and his son to be gloriously displayed? Are we jealous for the glory of God? Elijah was. No wonder he had such power in prayer. He was jealous for the glory of God. And so these his request that the Lord was uh, was to approve his uh, servant publicly. Lord, look in verse 37. Hear me, that this people may know that thou art the God and that thou hast turned their heart back uh, again. These are the elements then of acceptable prayer, prayer that gets answered, walking in obedience to his word, living according to the revealed will of God, and living a cleansed daily life. When we draw near to God to commune with him, there must be a putting away and a purposefully forsaking of all known sin. He will show it. You ask the Lord. You pray the prayers we taught last uh, meeting. Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. I've never prayed that prayer without God. So I'm exactly what he needed to show me. The Holy Spirit is very willing to show us what stands between us and our God because the Holy Spirit is always jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And He's jealous for those He's redeemed. He's jealous for our bodies, which should be offered as a living sacrifice for the Lord. You ask the Holy Spirit to show you that sin that's robbing you of what God wants to do in your life, and He certainly will do it. You just sit there with a pencil, pencil and a piece of paper, and you begin writing. 
He'll show you wrong attitudes toward people and lust that need to be killed and sins that need to be chopped to pieces and dealt with very drastically. It's to draw near to God, to commune with Him, there must be a putting away and forsaking. It is the sin which, this type of sin which alienates us from this blessing. Sin keeps us at a guilty distance from the Lord. It's Peter warming himself by the fire while the Lord is in Pilate's hall. That's what sin does. Christ died not only to redeem us by His blood, but Titus 2.14 tells us to purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It is the privilege of the weakest, feeblest, youngest Christian, no matter how pitifully he has failed to come to the Lord for, for cleansing, it is the privilege to come before the Lord confessing and forsaking sin and the Lord hearing and answering that prayer. We can grieve over our sins as David did. What an example. And confess them as contritely as he did if we have the same panting after holiness that David had. But there's another essential for answered prayer that we see here as we study this this monumental chapter in 1 Kings chapter 18. That the motive behind our praying must be right. We've already hinted that. What was Elijah's motive? To be a great prophet in Israel? Was that his motive? Was it to be the the, the chaplain at at Ahab's palace and to be fed at her table as as the prophets of Baal were? Lord, we want to get the right people in the office so we can have a right influence? Was it to have his name up and before the people? Was that, was that Elijah's mo, uh, moving factor? No. We've already told you what his motive was. Elijah was very jealous, not for his name, or for not his, his place in society, being known and respected and revered. He could care less about any of that. We're so careful about what people think and so careless about what God thinks. Elijah was only concerned about what the Lord God of hosts thought. He was not seeking his own advancement. He was putting himself in harm's way. He was about to make an absolute fool out of himself if he wasn't convinced there was a God in heaven and that he was right, and this was the prayer that God would have him offer. He was not asking for his own glory. He sought for God to be magnified. And when we so desperately want God to be magnified, He will choose ways to magnify Himself in our lives. Here's how we can test ourselves and our prayers. Do you know, to know the test? It's very simple. It's not complicated at all. Lord, Brother Lamb, how can I know whether I'm praying a selfish prayer or whether I'm praying, or how can I know that I'm praying a prayer that God will answer? Ask, run this test on it. That may not be the way to say that, but use this test to to test it, okay? Is this request for my glory or is it for God's? Can you put that request in that narrow, narrow place? Is this request for the absolute glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom? Or is it just something I want for me? James tells us and warns us about that. When you ask not that way, you're asking amiss. And that prayer will go unanswered. If it's for our own selfish lust, we must expect that request to go unanswered. This is the confidence that we have, John tells us in 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything at all, he'll hear us. Is that what that says? If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. In other words, that which will bring him glory. 
Most of our praying is carnal. Elijah said, I am thy slave. I am your servant, Lord. You can do anything you want to with me. You can make me a laughing stock. You can strip me of any position. When you're the filth of the earth, isn't that what Paul said we are? He said, we're the off-scour. We're the filth of the earth. Once you're the dirty dishwater, it doesn't get any lower than that, does it? So if you realize, guess what? We're the filth. Do you know that believers in Christ are considered the filth of the earth? Filth is not a very nice word, is it? It's the worst thing you can think of. Once you've owned that, hey, that's what I'm thought of, then it's, it's up from there, isn't it? And once you don't expect to have a place and not expect to be well received and expect to be laughed at and not understood by this, this secular apostate, apostate world, then we can say, Lord, I'm your slave. You can use me or not use me, embarrass me, whatever you want to do with me because all I want is for you to get great glory of my life. I am your servant. He starts off with that. You know who's reminding him of that? I am your servant. He's reminding himself of that. In other words, a servant, a slave is really the word, is submissive to the authority of the one over him, the one that owns him. One who is under the orders of a master. One who has no will of his own whatsoever but to do what the master, the owner, tells him to do. One whose constant aim is to please his Lord and to promote his cause. Is that you? Is that me? Is that how we live our lives? Do our priorities show it? Is that how we pray? Jesus took the form of a servant. And so I would ask, in our relationships, are we in that place? Wives, are you in submission to your husbands? Husbands, are you bitter against your wives? What does the scripture say? Your prayers be un- so that your prayers be unhindered. Children, are you in submission to your parents? Fathers and mothers, are you in submission to the authorities over you? Church members, are you in submission to the leadership? Are we accountable in this holy accountability that church membership is about? 1 Kings 18, verse 36, I have done all these things. How? At thy word. I've done exactly what you've told me to do. And when we do that, we can expect for God to hear and answer that prayer. The prayer he told us to pray. The work he told us to do. That's why we can go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, doubtless returning, rejoicing. When we go, we will, and we, when we witness and, and preach, we will reap to some degree at some point sheaves the souls that God has promised. All that Elijah had done was not for himself or of himself, but by divine direction. Go to Ahab. Tell him I'm still alive. Contrary to popular opinion, in Washington, D.C., or excuse me, in, in Jerusalem, Judah. Tell him there is a God in heaven. And Elijah, tell him I want to, to, to have an appointment with him. Tell him you want to meet at the hour of the evening sacrifice. Tell him to bring all of his guys, his people. Tell him to bring the, 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 the a priest of Baal. Tell him to put on their best show. And there I will reveal myself. And that's why Elijah could pray, Now, Lord, you, you've brought me here. You've told me what to say. I'm very jealous for the Lord God of I am your servant at your word. Would you say that with me? At your word. You see what confidence that is? Lord, I am doing this how? At your... What are we meeting in this prayer meeting tonight for? At your word. Did he not tell us to convene and pray? My house should be called a house of prayer. When we bring and pray, pray for one another's requests, we're bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Aren't we meeting at his word? Should we not expect 
answers to come from prayer meetings like this, from worship services? Do we not expect when the word goes forth that souls will be converted, that his house will be built up? We see there in verse 37, Hear me, O Lord, hear me. Oh, we see a fervency. That's a plea. I can just hear, Elijah, that rough prophet, simply clothed, out of style, according to all the, you know, the, 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 the don't you know the priests of Baal, they, they were dressed to the nines. Here comes Elijah, just a simple wilderness guy that he was. Didn't try to impress anybody. Lord, I'm your servant. I'm here because you told me to come here. Now, Lord, show that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His supreme desire was that God would be openly and clearly glorified as the one true God. Now, shouldn't, you, shouldn't we just reduce all of our desire down to that one thing? That the glory of the one true God be revealed. All of our requests should come from that motive, no matter what they are. That will help clarify our praying and clean, out our, clean up and clean out our prayer lists. The next to the glory of God, our desire is for him to save the lost and to make bare his arm and to show himself strong on our behalf. Next to God's glory, that which should be nearest our heart should be the salvation of the lost. He prays that thou hast turned their hearts back again. Jesus' disciples came to him and ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Not how to pray, just teach us to do it. Urge us, put within us that desire to pray. Teach us to pray. Do it. What is the answer? Pray until you get it right. What if I ask him this? He'll tell you. The unanswered prayer will show you that you, need to, you may be answering wrongly, at praying wrongly, or that he's going to do it another time or another way, but you keep praying. Ask him to show you if the request is is wrong or amiss. Pray with a cleansed heart. Pray according to his word and for God's glory above all with an obedient heart. That's how we want to come before the Lord as we enter to the prayer meeting tonight.